Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hi everybody, I hope you're doing well. Um, This week's episode is a little different to some of the others and I'm really excited about it. For a little while I've been looking for someone to talk about a lived experience and to share their story about being a social worker and also having experience as a service user. So with this episode I chat with Matthew Jackman and Matthew shares with listeners some of his experience being a service user, how he's advocating for change, being a peer worker and a whole range of really interesting things that he's doing and in particular one of my favorites is a subject that he's teaching which is called mad studies and you'll get to hear all about what this thing called mad studies is and here's some of Matthew's uh, experience and advice and some of the things he suggests to those who are maybe considering talking about and sharing their personal story and using it as a superpower He's a really big advocate for rethinking how we do social work and for challenging us to think about our own experiences, our own position in society and who we're really there to serve and how we could do that a little bit more inclusively, how we can do it a little bit differently and how we can use social work to promote change and the difficulties in advocating for change when we're often employed by some of those systems that are also oppressive and have contributed to some of these injustices. It's a really great interview and I hope you enjoy listening to what Matthew has to say. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 34 of the Inside Social Work podcast. Today I'm interviewing Matthew Jackson. Welcome Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Your bio is probably too long for me to pick out the best bits and introduce you. Do you want to share with the audience a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Thanks for, thank, thanks for that. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess firstly, most importantly, I'm a person with living experience of um, what psychiatry defines as um, bipolar and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I'm a person that's had living experience of, um, in the out-of-home care, foster care system and have lost my mum to suicide and have been a young carer to my um, younger siblings who live with um, bipolar and schizophrenia, again, as defined by psychiatry. Um, so I've had lots of sort of divergent and converging lived experiences that have sort of shaped um, the advocate that I am today in social work and a lot of my social work um, in terms of my practice has been in clinical spaces, so in forensic mental health um, and in the federal government, of which I didn't last long. Um, but, yeah, I really use a lot of my lived experiences now in global mental health work. So I'm the global lived experience ambassador for Generation Mental Health and I represent our region, the Western Pacific region, on the global mental health peer network um, and I'm a global shaper with the World Economic Forum and, um, and do some ad hoc um, consultancy and uh, lived experience consultancy for the World Health Organization. So I'm trying to move more into the social action, social enterprise space um, with a focus on systemic advocacy as I'm burnt out from clinical practice. There's so many things that you're getting involved with, which is all of them could be an episode, I guess, on their own. 
how, how do you find your social work background, um, I guess, equips you for some of those things? Yeah, well, I guess to me, uh, I was always very attracted to social work because of my experiences of injustice. And I think many of us in social work are attracted to social work for that reason, because its focus is on rights and its focus is on looking at the intersections of oppression um, and the layers of disadvantage that impact someone's opportunity and access in life. Um, so through my own experiences, um, I came to social work uh, and, and experiences of social work. And I think through studying social work, um, I really had such a great breadth of understanding um, the person, you know, the, the, the psychology or the intrapsychic. Um, but the focus wasn't solely on that, which was really important for me. Um, so the focus being uh, more the sociological, um, political science and economics, more the structural and social factors. And I think that really helps scaffold a lot of the advocacy that's required to be undertaken um, at any level, but particularly in a global space where we have um, great structural determinants, you know, around violence, trauma, poverty, colonisation, um, and we will never be able to redress those issues from a, an individual psychological framework. So um, the, the knowledge base of social work really helped me. I think the systems thinking and training in ecosystems work um, is really beneficial in terms of any systemic advocacy, particularly in global circles. Um, and my brain works well in circles rather than a linear way. So that really helped. And of course, all the micro skills that come with building relationships, working in teams, um, and, and working in systems. Um, so I'd say that, yeah, the focus on those and uh, with an intersection of looking at power and understanding how to use power for good um, really scaffolded my career. You've got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, that was um, yeah, I don't know what job, but that was fantastic. <laughs> so you... You share a lot about yourself when you talk about the experience you've had growing up and all the networks you're in, but you, you often, even just now, didn't seem to talk about your qualifications. How do you find that? Do you find, is that intentional or is that just something you think that's not who I am? Like, how do you kind of fit those two? Because a lot of people might introduce themselves as, as I'm a social worker and I've got this qualification, I've been working for this many years. And your way of describing it is a little bit different. And I, I imagine that's not accidental. No, it's definitely not accidental. Um, I think we, we, I think social work suffers from this, um, you know, injustice in, in knowledge that we privilege. Uh, you know, we call it epistemology or epistemic injustice, where we value certain knowledge over others, like biomedicine and law, and um, uh, deprivilege others, like Indigenous and cultural understandings, lived experience, and of course, social work is. Uh, maybe not as far down as lived experience, but with sociology, the focus is at the bottom of the privilege pool in terms of knowledge. So to me, I really re-attention, you know, it's an advocacy effort to re-attention that I place value, expertise and privilege my lived experience and cultural and spiritual explanations um, of the world um, over any, any, any particular professional qualification. Um, and, you know, I believe in a real, real decentering of professionalisation, particularly in social work. Um, and, yeah, I, I, you know, my qualifications have just harnessed my lived experiences, but my lived experiences have made me the person I am today. Great. Thank you for explaining that a little bit more. You teach something called MAD Studies. What is that? <laughs> 
So I'm really, really excited about this because MAD studies is like the equivalent to queer and women's studies. So it really centres on a disability framework or disability studies framework that looks at challenging the dominant biomedical model in mental health. Um, and obviously mental health impacts all different areas, not just mental health itself, um, as mental health is us, you know, it's human, humanity and living. Um, and so MAD Studies is really an attempt, it's an interdisciplinary um, emerging discipline. It, it, it probably emerged, um, I mean, initially out of the civil rights movement um, of the 70s, um, and it's sort of gained the name MAD Studies as a reclamation of madness as people that have been deemed mad by psychiatry and by the diagnostic frameworks that are used to deem us mad. Um, as, a, as a systemic advocacy attempt to reclaim, you know, our, our own expertise. So a lot of the disciplines around um, consumer and lived experience interventions and research and theory that's ground up and experiential. Um, but a lot of it's actually around very hardcore critical social work, uh, which is looking at the broader social and structural determinants that impact distress and reconceptualizing diagnosis as distress and locating most of our distress actually in unequal and unfair and unjust societies, you know, such as racism, poverty, sexism, homophobia. Um, and that's what actually fosters our diagnosis, not some sort of made up brain disorder. So um, it's basically an alternative to psychiatry um, discipline. It sounds, I think it makes me think, I mean, you were talking about the systems thinking and as um, a trainee family therapist, I can see what you're saying when we're looking at families and couples and relationships that sometimes what we might label as depression is a very natural response to feeling disconnected or not having your attachment needs met um feeling like the person that is supposed to protect you isn't protecting you like that's just the symptom that's the bit on top of you know the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing but underneath that there are a lot of other things that if we don't fix it's probably not going to go away Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think it's about, it's just about delving a bit deeper into, you know, people's presentation and, and what's actually going on um, beneath the surface, um, which is ironically not beneath the surface because it's located in the structural context. Um, so it is, it's about looking at gender and sexuality and roles and all sorts of things that are constructed by, you know, often colonial, patriarchal, white Western ways of thinking and doing. Um, which has kind of um, screwed us all over in many ways. Um, so I, I'm really excited that uh, MAD Studies is both a discipline, it's called an indiscipline, in that it's the idea of the disciplines to also promote activism on the outside. It's not just this academic, um, you know, ivory tower, um, is that most of it is actually, um, yeah, the idea of the ideas and the people in MAD Studies is to promote that community development and social action um, outside of the institution. Mm. It's interesting that you say it's, it's screwed us over in many ways because that's a lot of the um, conversation that's come out of the, uh, like not debate, but I guess conversation of Black Lives Matter, particularly in the US where some of their healthcare systems or education systems were set up in a way to, oh, we don't want those people to have, um, you know, to not to be lazy and to not have, you know, to have these benefits, but then it actually impacted everybody. You know, so these kind of judgments that were made about somebody getting a free ride or not allowing them to have access to something because they didn't deserve it essentially ruined those services for everybody. So um, there was some really interesting stuff coming out of that.
I think so. And 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 again, mad studies really speaks very uh, you know fondly to um, the intersection between race and madness, and that um, a lot of madness is deemed as deviance um, by white people, um, often white upper class heterosexual men, um, which is the you know the foundations of psychiatry as well. Um, and we haven't really evolved away from those diagnostic models of understanding and, and supporting or treating in the words of medicine. Um, and that we still hold on to the sort of that, that sort of relic of thinking from, you know, the um, 19th and 20th century, um, when really we need to be challenging and dismantling that sort of thought and, and really critiquing our own positionality of power, you know, and I say that as a, as a white man, you know, cisgendered man. Um, sure, I'm queer. Sure, I've had a pretty shit upbringing um, and I've had a lot of other um, disadvantaged intersections, but I have a role and responsibility and a privilege in utilising, you know, my whiteness and my maleness for good and in sharing that, you know, leadership is about sharing power. So um, I think we, it's really good that we've, we're having these conversations because we all have a responsibility to be accountable. Mm, and I like what you're saying about constantly reflecting on your internal self and your position in society um the episode just before this one comes out joe and alice were there they started a social work newsletter social work talks quarterly and we were sort of discussing that the degree is just the starting point that's almost the bare minimum you need to take a step into the field and to do it well and i'm an, an advocate for that is you never stop learning it's not just textbook learning but it's looking at how am i positioned in this world what um, assumptions am I making? What beliefs am I holding about everything? Mm. You know, and I've used the example several times where, you know, I was naive enough to give somebody a worksheet saying, I'll just complete this at home around the dinner table with your family. Mm. I don't know that they sit down around the dinner table with their family. Like we're always having to reassess those assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even, even in social work, you know, social work is, by nature, can, is quite conservative as a discipline of knowledge and, and quite homogenous in terms of the people that work within the discipline. And I think it's changing, but um, we need to critically reflect on, um, I guess, some of the handmaiden to oppression that social work's involved in, whether with government or with medicine or with law. You know, often social workers are asked to be the handmaiden to oppression um, and try and work within that system, even though we're being paid and funded by that system. Um, so it's really important as a professional self, but a personal self that we do reflect on that. And most of my best learning has come from being either a worker in the system or a service user in the system. Mm. So moving, um, that's a, I guess a good segue into why you chose to share your story in your social work role. Like what a lot of people, you know, were talking about just before we started recording that we all have a lived experience in something. Mm. And even if we look at kind of the, the more conservative mental health stats, they'll say, you know, there's a lifetime prevalence of mental illness of around 45%, if not higher. So the good chance in is one of two of us will have had a lived experience, mm. but very few people use that as um, maybe not leverage, but as fuel for their career and are vocal about it what's made you decide that that's how you wanted to position yourself? Well, I think I've lived a life in shame and uh, most people do with uh, a living experience. And, and I think there's an othering as well of, of you know, we, we don't know a lot about the etiology of distress and, you know, depression looks very different to schizophrenia and schizophrenia looks very different to a personality issue. And that looks very different to bipolar. 
Um, and we talk about them all as if they're the same thing. Um, and, you know, everyone can kind of now relate to anxiety and depression on a spectrum. And there's been a lot of great stigma busting and awareness campaigns around that. But what's happened is that it's othered more lower prevalence issues, um, issues that we don't really know still, we don't really know very much about in terms of the neurobiological makeup. Um, there's no real biomarkers in psychiatry for any of any diagnosis. Um, and it just speaks volumes about how little we know. Um, so for me, it's just about owning it and taking out the power of, um, of shame. Um, and people are connected um, to change through story and emotion. Um, so for me, using my story and using that emotional experience of humanity um, is actually a way to connect people to perspectives that maybe are quite radical, uh, not radical to me, but radical to them in terms of new concepts and moving away from a biomedical medical understanding of mental health is quite radical to a lot of people. So the way you do that is by connecting your own story uh, and, and speaking articulately to how your story relates to more of a trauma, social, structural focus in mental health. Um, so that's, to me, it's, it's a strategic advocacy uh, method as well. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I think people also, um, it's also my way of addressing stigma in community. And I think particularly for professionals in the field, um, there's even more stigma as if you can't, you know, uh, have had adversity or whatever, a diagnosis and, and still work as a professional. I mean, it's just nonsense. Um, so, you know, it's sort of my attempt at my own intervention at redressing stigma as well. How, I mean, have you experienced any hesitations or, you know, some challenges in making that decision to, to go kind of public with the lived experience that you've got? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's like any system, you know, it needs to be safe and not every system's safe to disclose, fully disclose. I mean, it's becoming harder for me because I am so public. Um, but there will be, you know, like any advocacy, you need to be strategic about, you know, the messaging, the power in the room. Um, you need to be considerate of all those things. I've lost two jobs because of my mental health. Um, some of the worst supervisors I've had have been social workers. Some of the most discriminatory have been social workers. Um, so, you know, I'm as much a critic of the profession as I am an advocate. Um, and I think, you know, social work is often moulded by other, other areas. So it's really important that we stand firm and, and really walk the talk within our own profession. Um, because, yeah, I've had some very bad experiences within departments of social work that really haven't been very nourishing of my mental distress when I've been struggling. That's so that that's sad and it angers me because I would think, um, and I'm not in a position where I'm hiring lots and lots of people because so it might not be a very valuable perspective, but I would much rather someone say, this is my story, this is what I need, these are my red flags, and then we work with that rather than someone pretending all is good. And it's impossible. We all have something happening at some point in our lives, whether it's our own physical health, mental health, caring for someone, someone might have a new baby, a relationship breakdown, an aging parent or grandparent, like there's, it, there's always going to be something. Mm -hmm. And I would think being more transparent and honest and saying, this is what my something is, this is what I need and how can we work with it will serve you well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's all that's all well and good until it impacts your performance. And we live in a capitalist world where our work is based on output. Um, and if you're not performing at the level that you're expected to, no matter, you know, and to be quite honest, very few people know about reasonable accommodations for people with, you know, psychosocial disability. Um, yeah, very few people know how to handle it. And I think that's part of the issue is that, you know, leaders don't really know how to support people in distress while still working particularly in mental health and particularly in trauma environments, if stuff's coming up. Um, I mean, I got, I lost my job in a federal government department recently, a few months back. Um, you know, I'd lost my partner due to quarantining back in Brisbane. I had stopped talking to my father. I'd gone to the office of the chief psychiatrist because my brother was on the verge of incarceration due to his psychosis. I had about 11 different stresses going on and I was really struggling and I was working with, you know, um, veterans you know experiencing trauma and um yeah i just i was really struggling and you know i had i i, I went, went on a new medication and that impacted my performance and then a week later i had a performance review and they said look you know they couched it in we don't think you're a good fit for the team because of course you can't discriminate because of people's mental health um but that was just a great classic example of how um, again, capitalist world, um, everyone's on contracts now. It's very rare you get a permanent full-time role um, and you could be gone the same day. So, um, and in the same conversation, they said, we're really, we really loved how open you were with your mental health, but don't share that with your peers. So it's like there's conflicting messages, you know, and saying we want you to be open, but we don't want you to share. So it's, you know, that to me speaks volumes about, um, and that was in a predominantly social work-based team. Mm -hmm. um, it speaks volumes about where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of that not telling your peers, um, it makes me think, I mean, the advice I would give, I mean, I would give to anybody being in sort of the therapy space, counselling space, I mean, I think everybody could benefit from having um, their own kind of counsellor or someone to talk to, just like you would go to the dentist. Mm -hmm. But I would think it's, um, even more important if you've got a lived experience and you're working in a space what are your thoughts on having somebody support you to share parts of your story with intention and purpose so that it all just doesn't flood out and you blur boundaries so how would you like what are your thoughts on sharing what you need to share but also taking a step back and recognizing not everybody has the same lived experience or the same stresses or the same coping strategies or lack thereof and still having a bit of that professional lens while also using your story as um, a way to have a difficult conversation perhaps for sure yeah there's a lot there's a lot in that because I'm a trained peer worker as well and in, in the peer space we're trained to use our lived experience but that that relationship actually be equal and that we're actually learning from the, the service users themselves they're our peers um, so there's kind of a real decentering altogether of professionalisation and needing to be like this expert. Um, so it depends on the role, I'd say, because I've worked in those sorts of roles as well where I've just been a peer, you know, even though I'm, I still have all power because I'm paid, um, I, you know, I'm there to learn from the service user and we're both there to share stories and learn from one another and, and kind of work, work our way through it. Um, but look, I would say absolutely. It's really important to um, have a really great external supervisor, um, someone that's not internal to the organisation where you can share your grievances. And to be honest with you, most social work environments you work in or organisations will frustrate you um, <laughs> because they're shaped by um, 
you know, a political environment that's about inequality and privileging the already privileged. And that's not what social work is about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're going to be, yeah, you're going to be pretty PO'd for most of your career. So it's important to have external. It's important to have a mentor um, and probably a mentor in the lived experience space. You know, there's a lot of consumer supervisors out there, consumer academics now, particularly in Melbourne. Um, so, you know, engage with engage with those who are doing, you know, cutting edge global leading work as um, in the discipline of lived experience and how to use that experience safely. Um, or move into lived experience roles. There's a lot of social workers that work in consumer and carer roles um, and they do that intentionally because they feel like they have they do better social work when they can speak to their own story and speak to other lived experience stories, more, more systemic, um, yeah, st strategy. In the peer work space, there is, um, I know some organisations in Australia are trying to come up with some more consistent frameworks and training, but one thing I remember from doing a bit of work in that space was how you answer kind of curly questions from, you know, if you're in a forum or if you're someone's like, oh, I'm taking this medication and, you know, you've had a bad experience with that. Had, framing things in a way that still, the, the underlying message was always one of hope, mm, mm. you know, and sort of, and this was what I took away from that. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts is, you know, you might say, yeah, I've also struggled to find the right fit. I've tried several different health professionals, but over time and with a bit of uh, persistence, you eventually find what works for you instead of saying, yeah, you're right. That person's crap. That medication had awful side effects. I didn't like, you're still sharing your story, but you're eliciting a message of hope and acknowledging that there'll be different things that work for different people. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. You know, connection, hope, empowerment, partnership, they're all key principles of peer work, much like social work, but social work still a little bit more removed from that, I have to say. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, totally. I think it's about, you know, honouring someone's experience, you know, sharing where you're at, um, but you're also not there to give expertise either. Um, so, um, yeah, you're not there to sort of be like, oh, that medication was really crap, you know, it didn't work for me. Um, so it's not about that either. Um, it's really about hearing someone out, you know, peer work in essence is really about like hardcore critical listening. Um, it's about honoring experience. It's about validating. It's about acknowledging. I mean, how often we all know, how often do we want to be told what to do by another person? We just want to be validated. We want someone to say, yeah, that really sucks. Um, you know, someone's, you know, coaching you on, you know, your relationship advice or whatever. You don't want to hear their opinion. You just want to hear that what you're going through is, you know, tough or whatever, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I would completely agree with what you're saying. So for, for, for new, uh, new and emerging social workers or those maybe considering jumping into the field who might have concerns or might have been told because of their lived experience, this is not a good job for them. What can you, what advice can you give them? Uh, firstly, that organisation is not the right organisation for you. Um, and positionality location is very important. So I would find safe spaces. I'd find safe organisations. There's plenty, you know, that um, are lived experience driven or 50-50, you know, in community mental health particularly. Um, the more medical you go, the more clinical you go, the further removed from lived experience you are. Um, so again, you know, um, unless you don't share that in teams and you just share that in microcosm relationships, you know, you share that in self-disclosure with family and consumers. 
Um, so I think it's about finding um, safe organisations to work in. Um, I think it's also about owning owning that story as well and finding its superpower, you know, finding its power, um, which I've managed to do, but over a long period of time. And, you know, I'm someone that's been in and out of hospital and have spent, you know, over six months in and out of institutions and in rehab and, you know, as a service user of the NDIS. So, um, you know, I've almost lost my life. So it's very, it is also very serious. Um, and yeah, it takes a long time to come to acceptance with your own story. And, and the antidote of shame is pride. And I think if we can find our roles in, in, um, in, in, in areas of pride, um, then we unlock our own personal potential as well as our professional uh, potential. So nowhere in anything you said was don't do it. Oh, no, do it, do it, do it. Highly encourage you to do it. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's actually a movement, like lived experience is starting to shape professionalisation in mental health a little, and we're starting to draw on lots of different tools, like intentional peer support, emotional CPR, um, the Hearing Voices group and network. You know, these are all lived experience interventions that are actually starting to decenter professionalisation in working relationships in mental health. Um, in sharing more of your story, in being more of a peer, rather than having to be an expert, because we're not experts in other people's lives. You know, we're there to facilitate story and hear and validate and work with and partner with. So um, I think I think we're going to see a lot more of this moving forward as medicines um, dismantled and deconstructed in mental health. It's interesting when you mentioned the hearing voices movement. I, I um, spent a bit of time pushing that in one of the services I worked for. And it's a shame that it took somebody who was a psychiatrist with a lived experience. Like the guy who started it was actually quite highly professionalized as well to actually get that to be taken seriously, that someone had to kind of sit in with feet in both camps to be able to push that through. And that's where the movement will come is from people owning their own lived experiences in mental health. And to be quite honest, I don't know one professional that I've worked with in mental health that's not either a family carer or a consumer themselves in some regard that's had uh, experiences of mental health. Who wakes up thinking, God, I'd really love a career in mental health one day. Um, it's usually through our own personal experiences that we come to working in mental health. Um, and yeah, I, I think the movement needs to come from within um, again, which means dismantling professionalisation and this like biomedical, like kind of um, a removal from like the human experience in mental health. We need to we need to re-engage with the humanity in mental health because um, the word clinical removes the human from um, the interaction. Um, so that's yeah, we've got a long way to go. So it, that's exciting though for new graduates because it means that they can be part of that movement and be an entrepreneur from within. It's interesting you say that the word clinical, it removes it because there's a push to get that recognised through social work to have a bit more professional leverage. Mm -hmm. So trying to balance that space of to get recognised as a profession competing or not competing but often being um, not taken as seriously as some of the other professions while then also trying to advocate for this decolonising and rethinking of how we structure all our work. Mm -hmm it's it's an it's really difficult it's a complete contradiction isn't it you know social work and you're right it is competition um but who's that serving who's social work serving if they're trying to clinicize the profession to compete with other professions which aren't already working for service users 
that's just furthering the profession, not furthering the service users and family carers. So, you know, this reformist attitude of social work becoming more clinical to try and compete as like second rate psychology um, is, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it at all. Um, I think social work can do great oppressive, anti-oppressive work in clinical or what we mean by more therapeutic roles. Um, and I think there's a place for that. But I think the ASW hasn't focused at all on the structural determinants, the social determinants that actually impact on mental health. Their focus has been way too much on Medicare and, um, yeah, and competition. Um, Which is a hard one because being someone in that system, it, it's almost like if we can't get that recognition, then our voices aren't heard in those big spaces of um, being an accredited mental health social worker. I see the challenge in our skill set not being recognised with um, sort of health insurance companies and really comprehensive reports being dismissed and someone preferring a GP letter. Like if we, mm-hmm. if we can't advocate for our clients, if people aren't taking our voices seriously, you know, you'll hear on the news, they'll talk about so-and-so with this profession and they, they really listen to that person's words. But if you say social worker, it's like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think social work, uh, in a way, it's kind of good for social work because it kind of means that we're doing our job as well because we're not as valued because we we actually honour disciplines that aren't, you know, bases of knowledge that aren't as valuable, you know, which is good. That's what the discipline's about. So it's like it's how do we honour, you know, being oppressed ourselves uh, because we honour um less powerful knowledge bases like, you know, Indigenous, cultural, spiritual, lived experience understandings and sociology, um, but still fight within a system of the psych science being psych nursing, psychology, psychiatry and biomedicine and law. You know, how do we still compete and fight with that empowered knowledge base but still, like, do the work that we need to do? You know, social work's in this really unique position um, as a profession of sort of... um, yeah, fighting against the very system it exists within, um, but also trying to, yeah, find its way in that and leverage what it can. And sometimes they're in complete contradiction of one another. So um, in an ideal world, social workers would be dismantling all those systems altogether, all those institutions, and be working in more critical spaces. Um, But, you know, within the current system, um, I guess it's about registration and yeah, more better recognition. Um, I think social workers are notoriously not great at explaining what they do and what their point of difference is um, and why social workers don't work at GP clinics, I don't know. Um, so all those sorts of little things, you know, where other professions have found their place but social work hasn't in, in the institutional context. And I think that has something to do with advocating for justice and government not wanting social work to have a strong voice uh, because it does... Uh, fight against the very, uh, you know, institutions of oppression such as the government um, that fund it. Yeah, we could, that could be a whole other episode. Um, (laughs) No, no, and I'm sure your students get to hear you talk about that and have some really rich discussions and critical thinking in your, your, was it, mad Mad study subject. Um, and you've mentioned bits and pieces of some of the key theories and frameworks you draw on, but are there any people who are looking to understand a bit more about a lived experience or some of the things you've mentioned that you recommend they read up on or check out? Yeah, certainly. Um, 
Yeah, in terms of my reference before, I mean, Mad Studies is a great text called Mad Matters by Brenda um, LeFrancois. She's a social worker and a person who identifies as mad. Um, and again, there's a number of us around the world that are kind of mad identifying that work within social work. Um, so that's a really good text I recommend. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned before, intentional peer support is a global leading um, uh, peer work model around decentering professionalization. So I'd highly encourage you. Again, the founder is a social worker, um, a mad person that went to study social work. Her partner's also a social worker. Um, so we see these social work, you know, kind of subversion um, within the lived experience space as well. Um, open dialogue is another great approach that I highly encourage students to look up. And that's looking at um, community systems work in supporting people in distress um, and based out of Finland um, and emotional CPR, as I mentioned. Um, yeah, just look up those websites. Um, and there's a, there's a great text called Peer Work in Australia. Um, and, and anything around critical mental health, I'd start revising critical mental health because to me that's real like hardcore social work. Um, and at, at a clinical level, you know, that looks like uh, anti-sanist practice, that looks like feminist therapy, that looks like narrative therapy. So it's about doing alternative, um, yeah, it's about alternative ways to working even in a clinical context. It's not just all about, you know, bringing the house down at a systemic level. Great. And I'll put some links to those um, and any other resources you want to um, send my way in the show notes. If there's one piece of advice you could share with the audience, either those who are graduates or maybe those who are listening who are in more senior positions, the choice is yours. What would that be, that piece of advice? Um, I think I think positionality is really important. I think, you know, getting back to critical self-reflection and your place in society and exercising the power that you have is really important. Um, so continually thinking about the layers of intersection that you bring to you, the person, and you, the professional, and thinking about how you can best use that to advantage in terms of doing work that's um, promoting rights and promoting justice um, I think that's a key takeaway. I think the other key takeaway is just being yourself, you know, being human. I think social work's power comes from us being really human and just being relatable. Um, and the minute that we try to over-professionalise and be more clinical or, you know, try and be something we're not, then we just kind of fall into the system of everyone else. Um, so I think I think we can still continue leading by being ourselves, and and the, the third the third thing is I think social work actually needs to start positioning itself outside of its traditional roles in in more community development, social action, social enterprise, and impact spaces, um, because we'll never be able to do great change if we're always just working within oppressive institutions, and we need to find positions of power outside of that to agitate those systems of and institutions of oppression, and that includes the government. So, um, yeah, they're my three takeaways, I think. Great. And I've got a couple or more than a couple of questions just about you as a person, if you are happy to just give quick answers. Sure. All right. What's the most recent book you've read? Um, I've been reading Feminist Therapy by Bonnie Burstow um, because I'm just finishing off my Master's in Counselling and Psychotherapy and I'm wanting to um, utilise more radical critical therapies in my practice rather than your traditional boring CBT. So that's a bit of light bedtime reading for you? 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I highly recommend it. She's an anti-psychiatrist by background and she looks at how to use therapy and locate it to a structural context. So, you know, looking at gender, um, looking at sexism, um, and, of course, that applies to everyone, not, not just people identifying as female, as, you know, that this is gendered. Great. What's the last TV show you've binge-watched? Oh, that's a really good one. I love Ozark on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen Ozark. It's very dark. It is very dark. Maybe that's why I like it. I think it's <laughs> really dark stuff. And I just find, yeah, I, the whole like drug smuggling and money laundering. I think maybe in another lifetime, I would have been a money launderer or something. I don't know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's just a fascinating, um, yeah, I guess, again, a systems lens looking at kind of the darker side of the world. Of the world. Mm. What's one dish you cook well? Uh, does lean cuisine count? Maybe you can order really good lean cuisine. <laughs> Uber Eats, lean cuisine. Look, I, I, my house <laughs> is half Thai and we cook a really mean pad thai. So yeah, We'll go with pad thai. <laughs> when I say we, it's, um, it's more like a psychiatrist and services relationship. So I'd say he does 90% of the work. And um, or has ninety percent of the power in that uh, menu making process, and I have about ten percent. What's your favourite thing to do on a day off? Uh, I love tennis, and I love I love um, drives. I love day trips. So sadly, with the pandemic, no day trips at the moment. Um, but yeah, love getting outdoors. If what's your backup career, or what did you want to be with a, when you were a kid? I wanted to be um, a journalist and a, pa a paramedic, actually. Um, but, yeah, I think journalism, I think I, I could have seen myself in that. But um, I have to say I do love a good um, karaoke session. So I could, I could imagine being like Ariana Grande in another lifetime, to be honest. I love the stage. <laughs> so money laundering wasn't a childhood dream then? No, no, not until I understood the concept and entered social work. <laughs> and... Uh, the last question, is there a quote or mantra that resonates with you personally? Well, that's a really good one. I read a lot of them. Um, there is a really good one. I've forgotten exactly how it goes and by, and by whom it is uh, from. Um, but it's, ju it's just around, um, I, I mean, the, the, the disability justice mantra of nothing about us without us is something that I always hold to my advocacy work. Um, and that obviously, you know, centering the inclusion of lived experience and service users, whatever environment you're working in is really important to me. So nothing about us without us. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I'll put that on there. Awesome. Awesome. But this has been such a lovely interview and really interesting to hear so many different thoughts and ideas. And I'm hoping some of the listeners will, will reflect on how they can you know, who they're serving, how they can do that a little bit better. Um, and those who have a lived experience, not to be scared of jumping into social work and using that story as their superpower. Yes, exactly. Story as superpower is so important and finding pride in your work and pride in who you are is really important because that, that's what changes the world. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Not a problem. Thanks for having me for listening to today's podcast be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts